Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. Today, we are talking to Richard Griffin, an artist and designer whose work focuses on artistic data visualization. He creates multisensorial data experiences that visualize the invisible technological dimensions of reality. In this episode, Richard reviews the most dangerous thresholds related to information nowadays, how the humanity can reshape the new post-pandemic world, and what role art and design communities play in the evolution of the man-made structures. Hi Richard, we are delighted to have you here with us today. We follow and admire work based on data visualization. Can you please tell us what are the most dangerous thresholds related to information nowadays? Um, Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Happy to be here. Um, Dangerous thresholds. it's difficult to say. I, th- I think there are a couple of issues that um, that I am interested in uh, based on my background. I started uh, my practice as a graphic designer uh, in the early 2000s. And um, at that point, uh, we were really thinking about the sort of democratization of media uh, and the idea that everyone with a computer could uh, produce media and information and the sort of uh, monopolies of the newspapers and television stations and um, uh, presses were were kind of broken down. For us, this was a very exciting time. Uh, The idea that we could all be publishers of information. Uh, And I think today, uh, 20 years later, you, you could say that um, there has been a democratization of information and everybody can uh, produce uh, information online and text and video. And I think what you can see, what we didn't really expect or what I didn't really expect is that um, the sort of problem of curation. Uh, so once everybody can publish, uh, it's very difficult to assess what are trustworthy sources. And I think today we are in an age where a lot of people don't really trust uh, the media anymore. They also really don't trust social media. Uh, when you read something online, you don't really know if it has been written by a person or an algorithm or uh, what where this person is coming from. So I think... Um, assessing sources of information has become much more difficult than, than I had imagined. And another thing that is sort of adding to that is um, how images and media are produced. So, uh, for example, when you think about um, deep fakes or uh, AI content generation in general, Uh, it's starting to become very difficult to assess the process of uh, creating information. So when 
you used to be able to trust a video as a sort of direct account of something that happened, um, but now you you can't uh, anymore. And of course, it's not really new. The same thing happened to photography. Uh, and you know, when we see a picture, we all know that there is a possibility that it has been photoshopped, um, and we kind of got um, accustomed to that. Um, so that when we see a picture in the New York Times, we kind of trust it. And if we see a picture uh, in WhatsApp, then maybe uh, we trust it a little bit less. And I guess the same will, will be true for video. I think we're, we're in a kind of transition period where we don't really expect video to be fake, but it might be fake. Um, and I think with the sort of... Uh, developments in AI, you should start to apply that to media in a much broader sense. Uh, that it's very difficult to assess where something comes from. And when that happens, assessing the source becomes more important, I think. Um, so, so when you speak of dangers, I mean, this is not my, my expertise per se uh, to, to think about these kind of things strategically, but um, that is something that uh, I, I sense uh, it's a danger right now. Thank you, Richard. Uh, what is your vision on virtual reality and will it be stronger incorporated in our daily lives and artistic landscapes? How will it enrich them and what are the possible threats? Hmm. Um, yeah, and the virtual reality is interesting. Um, I did quite a bit of experimentation with uh, virtual reality uh, haven't really incorporated it into actual projects uh, yet because I'm still sort of struggling with this notion of immersion. Um, and I think virtual reality is very interesting for very immersive um, stories or, or, or uh, scenes. Uh, I think that it, it's not... A coincidence that you see a lot of applications of VR in gaming. Um, I think when it comes to data visualization, uh, I find it a bit more difficult to sort of combine the notion of immersion and the need for a kind of uh, maybe distance or reflection when you when you deal with data visualization. So I haven't really found uh, a, a way to combine data visualization and immersion. Uh, the way I think of VR is, is a bit like going to, uh, to a, a movie theater uh, where you really want to be uh, immersed in, in, a, in a story or in an environment. Um, whereas I think um, in, in my field, I'm more interested maybe in... Uh, XR, extended reality or augmented reality, where you have um, a sort of uh, blend between uh, virtual and, uh, and, and physical. Uh, precisely, I think, because in my work, I, I usually try to, um, to make that bridge between the virtual and the actual. So for me, there's, there's not so much of, an, say, uh, need to completely immerse in a subject, but but more to um, to create a sort of 
hybrid and to use the physical environment to understand the virtual environment and vice versa. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that, in that dialogue between the two. Um, whereas I, I think in VR, uh, I, I see applications much more in storytelling or uh, sort of cinematic uh, experiences. You took part in the last year's Triennale di Milano with the collaborative work I see that I see you don't see, speculating design as both problem and a solution. So is design a creator or a destructor? It's, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that. I think, I mean, of course, design is both uh, sort of creative and destructive in, in, its, uh, in, in, in practice. I tend to, to look at it as creative. I, I don't think um, there, is, there is a designer who sets out to design something destructive. Uh, I think in general, the act of designing is, is, is usually uh, comes from a desire to, to construct, to create, to sort of add to what is there and, and to sort of contribute. Um, and I think with everything that you can do, uh, there, there's always... Um, there's always a negative, there's always a flip side, there's always unintended consequences. But I think if I look at, uh, at it from a distance and you try to uh, come to a kind of net result of design, I, I, I would say it's, it's positive. I think it's a constant dialogue of people who try to create things that solve uh, problems that may have been created by the, by the sort of previous iteration of, um, of, of other designs or other products. Uh, but I think as a whole, uh, I would like to think of that as a sort of uh, constructive process um, in, in the long term. Uh, and I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about that. I mean, of, of course, uh, when, when you look around and you look at the sort of contemporary um, reality, you can have all kinds of criticism about uh, technology and, and how things are implemented. But um, I, I take the, the positive view uh, where I think um, the development of technologies and the development of design is one that eventually um, improves upon the situation. Speaking of the creating abilities of design, the exhibition Broken Nature as well demands us to collectively apply our resources in order to constructively repair the damaged ecosystems that we inhabit and shape. How do you think we can reshape, reconsider the new post-pandemic world? Is the art and design community playing a vital role for human survival? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, uh, in the Netherlands, when, when they imposed uh, the lockdown, they were very explicit that um, you could use the train or you could uh, you bring your kids to school if you have a vital profession. Um, and it became, became uh, quite clearly, quite quickly, that um, designers were not seen as having vital professions. Uh, which I think makes sense. So if you look at it from a sort of immediate uh, perspective, uh, no. I mean, obviously, uh, food and medicine are uh, uh, first. Um, I think, you know, once those things are covered uh, and you're healthy and you're, you're not hungry, then I think uh, the question, uh, where do we go from here? What's next? Uh, 
is, is something that, that, that artists and designers definitely play a role in. Um, of course, uh, when you look around, you might think that um, technology is the, is the main driver of, of uh, sort of development and, and, um, and progress, maybe. Uh, but I, I, I always feel that um, a lot of technological development is uh, informed by uh, artistic narratives. Uh, and, and I think a lot of uh, technologies that, that, that define uh, the sort of our, our lives today uh, can be traced back to, um, to books and movies and, and um, visions and ideas that, that maybe weren't really about implementing uh, and, and sort of uh, realizing all those sort of technical um, details. But um, I, I, I do think that uh, ideas and visions uh, laid out by artists and writers and designers um, have a significant impact on where technology develops next. Your exhibitions are always with sensorial elements. Is experiential art the next step in elevating our consciousness? I don't, I don't know. I think I think it. it, it um, I would refer back to to this this question about uh, VR and uh, immersion. Um, I think in in my work, it's 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 important because uh, the subjects that I try to take on are uh, about uh, the virtual, the digital, uh, sort of very abstract uh, concepts that we can uh, sort of understand by, um, you know, looking at a computer screen and then you, you look at abstract representations of, of this, this digital world. And uh, I think for me, the goal is to translate those abstractions into uh, experiences that allow us to have a more uh, maybe embodied relation or a sort of uh, intuitive relation with that technology. So for me, it's a, it's a contrast, I think, between uh, abstract software structures and the uh, sort of physical experience of being in a space and having a sense of skill and being able to uh, relate your own skill to the skill of, of the, uh, uh, the visualization uh, or the artwork uh, helps, I think, uh, to, to get a more um, sort of intuitive relation with that, um, with that subject. Do you think the lockdown is the opportunity for new media artists to show their full potential and for museums to reconsider their spaces accordingly? Um, I, I've been thinking about that. I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to say where, where things are going next. Um, I, I, I do think that this whole sort of crisis where, where, where a lot of things are put upside down uh, could be a catalyst for, for um, some changes that may have been coming um, for, for a while. Um, and um, 
maybe digital art in, in, a, in a museum has always been a sort of transitional um, uh, solution um, where you use the structure of a museum to exhibit uh, objects uh, to sort of uh, support uh, new developments in, in, in art. Um, and, and from that sense, I, I, I could see that there may be different uh, or new sort of um, stages or, or new um, um, sort of environments where you, where you could display uh, or show or distribute virtual art. On the other hand, and I, I noticed it with all these uh, Zoom meetings lately, um, you know, experiencing something on a screen is, is, is still tricky uh, oftentimes. And um, for example, with, with net art, um, I mean, that, that is something that is sort of designed around uh, the, the, the space of the screen. It's, it's designed to be, uh, to be looked at in a, in a browser. But personally, I, I find it difficult to uh, sort of get that kind of concentration um, in front of a computer. Uh, but th that's just because I'm sort of um, conditioned to be in a certain mindset when I'm in front of a screen uh, in, my, in my office. Uh, and for me, that, that, that is still different uh, from being in a museum, but that, that is also a kind of historical training that I've had, that I've been in museums and have had this mindset. And I made this connection in my mind between this place and this state of mind. And um, so for me, it still makes sense uh, as, a, as a place of concentration maybe, um, but you know that that might be something that is sort of uh, trained in in myself. But you know, maybe for for a generation that grows up, you know, maybe if say museums uh, cannot operate for the next five years, um, you know, then you have a whole different situation. And I think um, this 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 whole situation could could really change existing structures much more quickly than you would imagine uh, on, on, on various um, levels. I, I, I already uh, noticed this in my practice uh, where I have a lot of international projects um, that have become very uncertain uh, right now. And you start to think about this whole situation and, and you realize that a lot of artists and designers have very international practices um, and um, you know a lot of museums in the Netherlands they invite artists from around the world and a lot of museums in around the world they invite artists from other places around the world because we can all travel so easily so um, I, I can definitely imagine uh, a future where travel would be more difficult um, and this system that I have become used to over the last 10-15 years um, could change e either through virtual presentations or maybe also more local presentations.
As you mentioned, we live in the age of digital culture, and right now the world fully went online. This must have affected your artistic research. Can you tell us what are you working on next? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it affects my practice. Uh, like I said, I think uh, I'm, I'm kind of preparing for maybe um, a, a different way of showing my work. I'm not sure if the sort of international presentations that I had lined up for the rest of the year are realistic. Um, and maybe for next year and the year after, it's, it's once you start to think about that, you, you, uh, you can really envision a different way of working. So that is definitely on my mind. Um, in my research, it's, it's not really, uh, it's not really about that uh right now so uh, i'm i'm uh, doing a lot of research uh on uh, artificial intelligence right now um, i'm really interested um in ai uh more and more um i i used to be a little bit skeptical about um the abilities of AI as a creative tool. Uh, and I've been thinking about that for the last few years quite a bit. Um, but recently I, I have become convinced that for me there is a kind of necessity uh, in researching AI. And I think um, specifically uh, because I feel that a lot of AI um, projects or AI applications are uh, sort of mystification of technology. And I think uh, in, in many ways, a lot of the, the work that I do is about trying to demystify technology. When I make a visualization about uh, radio infrastructure or cell phones or, uh, or wide spots or, or, or um, sort of satellite coverage, uh, I try to sort of demystify or, or maybe make more uh, tangible uh, these sort of complex technological structures. And I find that in AI, um, most of what I've seen in AI functions as a kind of black box um, uh, where you know uh, something is put in on one end and something comes out on the other end, but what happens in between and how uh, people relate to that is often... Um, very unclear. Um, so most of the research that I'm doing now is in trying to uh, study AI algorithms and uh, try to uh, find sort of visual language of uh, that, that, that can help us understand what is going on inside AI and um, what our relation with AI or our sort of position uh, towards AI could could be. So um, I'm, I'm very interested in um, the role of um, people in relation to AI. So a lot of um, examples where you, uh, where AI is mentioned, you, uh, you think of AI as a kind of automation uh, where the human is no longer necessary because the AI takes over. Um, and 
I'm, I'm interested in exploring different roles. Uh, so for example, a situation where a, a user can control an AI or uh, train an AI based on uh, a certain way of looking uh, or a certain way of thinking uh, and, and sort of embed that sort of um, human quality into um, AI. So um, th there is a lot of uh, research that I'm doing in that uh, respect. Uh, and it's research that I have time for right now uh, because everything is canceled. So um, I, I, I found it's a good opportunity to, um, to explore some, some new um, directions that um, you know require a lot of um, research and, and uh, sort of practice. So um, this is, I think, how I try to make this whole crisis useful in a way, uh, with all the distractions out of the way. Um, I have time to do some studying. I got to know your work at Manifesta in Palermo, Richard. Connected by air installation, for me, represented the perfect symbiosis of digital and classical art, a very sensitive and poetic work, something I personally would love to contemplate again. What are your thoughts on buying and collecting digital art? So the, the work um, I did for Manifesta in Palermo uh, was, was uh, an invitation from, from Manifesta to, to create a new work for uh, for this uh, for this exhibition, and uh, I was able to visit uh, the exhibition space before I started to work, um, and this was the first time for me in Palermo. Um, and um, I was really struck by by the, the spaces uh, where they were going to have this exhibition because this is a city that is filled with magnificent uh, palaces uh, with incredible. Um, sort of romantic ceiling paintings and uh, this is something that you know in the Netherlands you, you don't see that um, and especially because many of these spaces were also um, semi-discarded so it was a really sort of fascinating uh, uh, environment um, so um, I thought it was interesting to to uh, to look at and sort of take this environment as a, as a starting point for, for this work. And uh, since my, my work is about data and about uh, showing data in relation to your physical uh, surroundings, uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to uh, try and um, create a kind of, I call it like a contemporary uh, uh, ceiling painting. Uh, so I, I wanted to make that reference to uh, to those ceiling paintings because I, I thought it was so interesting that they were, in a way, imaginations of the sky. Uh, they are painted in this sort of illusionistic way that that make it seem as if the picture that is drawn on the ceiling sort of blends into the architecture. Uh, so from standing from a specific uh, point in the room, um, you, you can look up and experience this imagination um, as if it's a sort of extension of the, of the physical 
architectural reality around you. Um, and then the imagination that you see on these in these frescoes is, is often uh, it's, it's often religious or historic uh, scenes that are depicted, and they they kind of project uh, an image of what might be uh, in the clouds. Uh, and I thought it would be wonderful to to make a sort of contemporary version of that and, and uh, uh, paint, as it were, a picture of the contemporary sky uh, over the city uh, and project it onto a ceiling uh, in, a, in a sort of um, um, perspective or illusionistic way as well. Um, so what I did is I, I went looking for data sets that describe the sky over the city of Palermo. Um, and in the end, I, I, I made a sort of collage of several data sets that describe um, air traffic, um, air quality, uh, wind streams and patterns, uh, sort of the electromagnetic charge of the sky as it is uh, impacted by cell towers and satellites. And I combined it into, uh, into an image uh, that is, in a way, uh, a sort of a very contemporary data visualization, but because it's projected into this uh, in a uh, really interesting space in, in, in this uh, palazzo where the ceiling is, is uh, dome-shaped um, and, and the visualization um, projects a kind of cut-out uh, circle, almost like the Pantheon in, in Rome, um, that allows you to, to look up into the sky. Um, so it's really, um, I think, uh, a hybrid between uh, the data visualization and the space um, that it's presented in. And I think for me that is, uh, um, th that's the, the ultimate goal, really, to, uh, to, to, to achieve um, a data visualization that is meaningful uh, in its context where it's shown. So I was very happy with, with that opportunity to, um, to work there. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's uh, the work in uh, Palermo. And um, what your follow-up question was? It was, uh, what are your thoughts on buying and collecting digital art? Ah, yeah. Um, I must say, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, I have done some projects that um, uh, have been collected by, by uh, art institutions. Um, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, it's, it's um, like we discussed earlier, uh, the role of the museum uh, uh, as a space for, for displaying digital art uh, in a way is using a structure of the past to cater to uh, a technology uh, of the future or contemporary technology. Uh, and I think that the same may be true with, with collecting. I'm not sure. I don't have uh, a lot of experience with that, but um, the works that have been collected by art institutions, um, it, it seems like um, the, the collection of that institution is informed by a sort of traditional view on collecting. Uh, and you run into many practical difficulties when you collect a digital work. Um, 
I, I, I've, I've tried to sort of accommodate uh, to that. So when you, for example, uh, sell uh, an app to a, to a museum collection, um, I mean, they can, they can just download the app from the app store. Um, so uh, it's, it's in a way, it is already a kind of, um, let's say, artificial uh, uh, construction. Um, but if you say uh, you, you, you want to uh, include this app into the collection, what do you include? Do you include the app? Do you include the physical machine, the iPad? Uh, how do you prevent uh, problems? Like, for example, if in 10 years uh, someone switches on the iPad and starts updating its, its, its software and then your app doesn't work anymore. So um, there, there's a, there are a lot of issues um, with that. Um, sometimes... I came to think of digital art almost like performance art uh, in a way that you could say it's, it's there when it's there and maybe you better document it rather than trying to save the actual performance uh, because it's, it's super difficult and you can take a lot of precautions and you can take a lot of steps to, to uh, make something uh, durable uh, as best as you can, but in a way you kind of know that it's uh, a lost battle because um, I think, you know, um, bits and bytes are very ephemeral. So they, they, they just, uh, they fall apart. They, they sort of, they want to fall apart and uh, trying to keep them in one piece um, my sense is that it more or less requires permanent uh, effort to to conserve um, digital media, um, and you know, especially digital art. Uh, I mean, if it's film, there are like strategies that you can maybe you know, copy it onto something else every five years. But if it's like uh, if it's software, um, it's it's um, it's tricky. Um, so for, for now, mostly uh, when I sell uh, digital work or when it's collected, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a combination of hardware and software. So you want um, to um, sort of deliver something that can be contained uh, on its own hardware, um, sort of exclude it from the internet and updates and make sure it just stays the same. Um, and then as long as the device doesn't uh, die and it's, it's kind of um, preserved, but it's, it's also, um, um, I mean, I also notice it in, in my own work uh, when you do digital projects for 20 years, um, you end up with basically an endless amount of projects that need to be maintained. Um, so uh, a lot of my work is, is live projects. So, so things that um, uh, keep gathering data or sort of keep interacting with, with users. So um, basically with every project that you do, you have one more thing to worry about for the rest of your life, basically. Uh, if you want to keep it um, working. Um, so 
that's a challenge. Um, I, I try to, to maintain things the best I can, but it, I haven't found a sort of um, final solution for that. As an art practitioner who runs a design studio for contemporary information and culture and does the research, what is your stance on globalism and how do you think the conversation will be changing? Yeah, I think um, uh, there are there are two narratives. Um, on, on the one hand, you see um, a tendency towards deglobalization. I mean, right now. In, in the last, say, two months, um, we start to question if you know the global supply chain, where everything comes from China, is always a good idea. When you know we need something and there are no planes, uh, so I think a lot of people start to realize that um, some aspects of globalization are problematic, practically. Um, and I think you know you 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 will that that probably will continue as as you know um, people will probably fly a whole lot less uh, in the next few years. Um, so things might deglobalize in a way uh, and maybe nationalize as well. There are there are a lot of uh, discussions now in the Netherlands where you know should the state uh, save. Uh, the airline company and uh, uh, should it nationalize things and uh, should you close your borders and uh, so in, in that sense it, it, it's, it's almost it seems like you're going back in time and things are uh, becoming more local and, and more national on the other hand I mean I cannot imagine a world where we don't hear from China anymore or we don't hear from the US anymore. I mean the sort of communications infrastructure is not going to go away. So we will continue continue to be aware of uh, the rest of the world. It's not like we can shut that down, I think. Uh, so in a way, I think it will probably be both. It will probably be um, a combination of increased globalization uh, in terms of communication and maybe decreased globalization in terms of uh, sort of physical space where you, where you might not get around that much. Uh, but probably, uh, you know, when you make a new work, you are informed by events on the other side of the world. When I am studying uh, machine learning, I am informed by um, scientists and artists around the world. I mean, that is really, uh, there are no borders there. Uh, but then when you want to show it, uh, you know, maybe it, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be uh, New York, Paris, and Rome. Um, so it, it's, um, I, I can see, um, and, and I think um, I've, found that in, in times like these, when there are different scenarios, when you read the news and you read about uh, globalization and deglobalization, um, it's, I think it's, it's never really uh, proving to be one or the other. It's, it's usually both. Um, so, um, 
I, I think the, the same goes for the sort of um, consequences of this whole um, situation. There's going to be positive and negative consequences. Um, and it, my sense is that it's probably going to be both. So, uh, you know, once we start tracking people uh, through their phones to see if they have a disease, we end up in a kind of uh, Orwellian space where there's much more control and much less privacy. And on the other hand, maybe we start flying less and it will be better for the environment. So, you know, you have, this, you have an outcome where um, maybe... Um, things are going to be better environmentally and worse in terms of privacy. So it's, it's, it's probably an, a dialogue um, in, in both directions. Thank you very much, Richard, for this insightful conversation. <laughs>